The time is now. Volume 4, Episode 75. This is Employment Law Now. Welcome back. I am Mike Schmidt, your host, obviously, uh, Vice Chair of Labor and Employment here at Cozen O'Connor. Things are changing. Things are developing. I really appreciate you spending uh, your busy schedules uh, to continue to listen to my podcast. And in return, I have been trying to stay on top for all of you of all of these changing developments and issues. In particular, the government agencies on all levels, but particularly on the federal side, continue to be very active when it comes to COVID-19. You are all in the process, I know, of continuing to work on and finalize your return to work protocols and communications for those who are just starting to bring your employees back to work. And you need to continue to monitor all the changing rules and changing guidance, as difficult and as arduous a task as that might be. But in just the past couple of weeks, we've had two agencies, the EEOC and OSHA, uh, update us once again on certain really important issues relating to return to work, how to deal with employees who are returning to work, how to deal with accommodation requests. And I wanted to provide this brief update to you uh, on both the EEOC and OSHA new guidance. First, with the EEOC, you'll remember back on May 12th, which was episode 70, I provided to you an update uh, at that point of where the EEOC was on its guidance. All buckets relating to discrimination and accommodation and screening and testing. If you didn't have a chance to listen to that episode, again, it was episode 70 back on May 12th, 2020, uh, perhaps that you would find it helpful. But since that episode, and in the past couple of weeks, the EEOC has again updated its guidance and provided answers to 10 new questions that I wanted to um, provide to you today. So here goes with the new EEOC guidance. The first one is a big issue. It's talking about testing and what kinds of things can employers test for and what kinds of things uh, can employers not test for. And here the EEOC made a distinction between testing for um, the COVID-19 virus as opposed to testing for antibodies and which can employers require of employees. And what the EEOC has now said is that employers are not permitted to require employees to get antibody tests. They are still permitted to require that employees get tested for COVID-19 for the active virus, again, to the extent that we are still in a pandemic situation uh, and testing for the virus in real time obviously serves a purpose to determine whether an employee should be allowed to come into work, come into the building or not. However, 
since the CDC has said in its own interim guidelines that antibody test results shouldn't be used to make decisions about returning individuals to the workplace, the EEOC has piggybacked on that and said, no, an antibody test does constitute a medical examination under the ADA, but unlike active COVID-19 tests, we're not going to permit employers to require that of employees. So, Yes, employees can still require that. Uh, yes, employers can still require that employees be tested for coronavirus. No, employers may not require that employees be tested for antibodies. Second question, and this is a real big one. I'm getting this question quite often from clients. What about an employee who asks for an accommodation because they are afraid of going out into the world, going back to the workplace, and exposing a family member who is at a higher risk of getting an illness from COVID-19 because they have some underlying medical condition or because they are within the vulnerable population? The EEOC has confirmed that those employees are not entitled to an accommodation. Again, it's important to be clear, and, and I've talked about this before as well, in the area of associational discrimination or associational accommodation requests. That means when an employee is associating with somebody, particularly because they may live with somebody um, who has a particular condition. Well, here too, there is a distinction in the law. The ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, prohibits employers from discriminating against employees because of who they associate with. So, for example, if an employer takes some adverse action against an employee because he or she lives with or associates with someone who has a disability, that would be a violation of the ADA. On the other hand, just because discrimination is prohibited based on an association, there is no requirement under the ADA that you accommodate an employee because he or she associates with someone else. So simply because an employee is fearful that returning to work, leaving the home, might pose um, a risk to somebody that that employee lives with, there is no obligation to accommodate under federal law. You would be wise to check uh, state or local law in the jurisdiction where you are working or where your employee is located, but as a general matter, uh, particularly under federal law, there is no requirement to accommodate somebody simply because they are living with someone in a vulnerable state or someone who has an underlying medical condition. Now again, if that employee himself or herself has a medical condition or some other situation that might entitle them to a reasonable accommodation, well then in that case, uh, you would be best served to engage in any required interactive process uh, that is triggered by that. But so the EEOC has answered that question for us. Uh, the next question, the next couple of questions that the EEOC just recently answered um, pertains to harassment because there is no question that the EEOC is starting to and will likely continue to see an uptick in harassment complaints based on national origin, particularly based on employers or co-workers who are engaging in pandemic-related harassment against employees who are or are perceived to be Asian. So the EEOC has um, taken some time to tell employers 
that they need to be diligent when it comes to preventing this type of harassment also. Managers and management need to be alert, according to the EEOC, to demeaning, derogatory, and other hostile remarks directed to our to employees who are or are perceived to be of Chinese or other Asian national origin. Um, having to do with the coronavirus or the origin of the coronavirus, it is important, uh, and it's a good time to stop and consider this issue. We all say as organizations, well, we've got anti-harassment, anti-discrimination, anti-retaliation policies, but it is so important not only to make sure that employees understand that those policies continue to exist during the pandemic, certainly, and as employees are returning to work, but that there is some communication with employees so that we sensitize them to the fact that these policies apply specifically to this kind of situation that is unique to the pandemic. Particular pandemic-related harassment against employees who are or are perceived to be Asian. Same goes uh, for when we're dealing with people who are teleworking or are not necessarily in the office and who are engaging in harassment or some type of discrimination or retaliation electronically through social media, through email. The EEOC has made clear in its updated guidance, quote, the employer should take the same actions it would take if the employee was in the workplace. Employees may not harass other employees through, for example, emails, calls, or platforms for video or chat communication and collaboration. So again, whether it's something being said or done through social media, through email, through Zoom, or some other online video conferencing, the same rules of the road apply, and it is important for organizations to advise employees of that and to train managers and management officials uh, to that. Next bucket of new guidance from the EEOC. As a best practice and in advance of having some or all employees return to the workplace, are there ways for an employer to invite employees to request flexibility in work arrangements? And the answer, according to the EEOC, is yes. Employers are permitted to make information available in advance, as long as it's going to all employees, about who the contact is to request an accommodation for some disability that they may need upon the return to the workplace. The point being made by the EEOC is that you don't need to wait, and in fact probably shouldn't wait, for, employers, uh, for employees to first come back to work. These discussions about potential reasonable accommodations that are needed, these discussions as part of any required interactive process can take place prior to the employees returning to work and probably should be. The EEOC is also addressing a situation where an employee looks to enter a particular work site and requests some accommodation when it comes to screening that is being done on site due to a medical condition. The EEOC in its new guidance has confirmed that that type of accommodation is in fact a request for reasonable accommodation and the employer should proceed as it normally would with any request for accommodation under the ADA. If it is a request that is easy to provide and inexpensive, 
The employer might voluntarily choose to make it available to anyone who asks without even going through an interactive process. Remember, the EEOC has previously told us that employers really do need to adapt a mindset of flexibility, particularly in these first few days, weeks, and perhaps months that employees are starting to return to work. You want to be consistent, and you certainly can adopt policies that protect your company's legitimate business interests, but you also want to be flexible uh, in the application of these policies, uh, if for no other reason than, as I've said several times in the podcast, to accept this psychological impact that we know is going to be taking a toll on employees as they return to work. Continuing along with the new questions and answers provided uh, by the EEOC, specifically in the bucket of potential age discrimination, the CDC, as we know, has told us that individuals who are 65 years of age and older uh, may be at a higher risk for a severe case of COVID-19 if they contract the virus. And so the EEOC is throwing out the question of, whether employees who are 65 years of age or older have specific protections under federal employment discrimination laws. And here the EEOC reminds us, as we all know, that the ADEA, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, does prohibit employment discrimination against individuals age 40 and older. As we've talked about, that statute prohibits employers from involuntarily telling an individual because he or she is over the age of 65 that they cannot return to work, even if they're doing that uh, for benevolent reasons or because they think they're doing the right thing. You simply, as I have said before, cannot make employment-based decisions because of a presumption or an assumption that somebody needs that type of uh, accommodation or that type of rule because they are in a particular group as a general matter. Employers are free to provide flexibility to those workers who are 65 years of age or older, and the EEOC has confirmed that the ADEA does not prohibit that, even if the situation results in younger workers, particularly those between 40 and 64 years of age, being treated less favorably based on age in comparison because you as a company are providing greater flexibility to workers in that vulnerable category. The next question addressed by the EEOC in its new guidance, if an employer provides telework, modified schedules, or other benefits to employees who have school-age children, due to school closures or distance learning during the pandemic, are there sex discrimination considerations? The answer is potentially yes. And this too falls in the category, I think, of employers often trying to do the right thing, but when they're doing that, they're not always taking into consideration the potential disparate impact, the potential discriminatory impact that it may have on one or more protected groups. So the EEOC gives an example how female employees cannot be given more favorable treatment than male employees because the employer is making a gender-based assumption about who may have caretaking responsibilities for children at home. So what's the takeaway with so many of these things? Well, and I keep beating a dead horse over and over, but it's so important that we understand this. Do not be knee-jerk in your reactions, in your decision-making. 
even if it's something that you think you're doing the right thing or you're doing something to help a particular employee, you need to analyze the situation to determine whether you are being appropriately consistent, whether you are taking into account all of the various leave and other obligations that you may have, both generally and specifically as enacted in response to this COVID-19 pandemic, and whether you are unintentionally burdening or discriminating against a particular protected group. The uh, last couple of questions that the EEOC has just given us uh, have to do with pregnancy. Uh, first, the question is whether an employer, as a result of the pandemic, can exclude an employee from the workplace involuntarily due to pregnancy. And the answer to that is, again, no, for the same reason that I just mentioned with regard to the age category. Even if, again, the employer is motivated by a benevolent concern, as the EEOC says, employers are not permitted to single out workers on the basis of pregnancy in order to take some adverse employment action, including not letting them back to work or laying them off or putting them on a furlough if that's not something that they've requested uh, and not something that they want. Then lastly, the EEOC, in a related fashion, asks, is there a right to accommodation based on pregnancy during the pandemic? And that really is going to depend on whether there is a pregnancy-related medical condition that rises to the level of a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. Under the ADA, pregnancy itself is not a disability, so the mere fact that someone is pregnant does not mean that they are disabled and therefore are entitled to the benefits of the ADA, though I would, as I always do, implore you to, again, check state and local laws because there may be broader protections in this area like others. However, an employee may have a pregnancy-related condition that then rises to the level of a covered disability. Some refer to it as pregnancy plus, and it's that plus, that medical condition arising out of or related to the pregnancy that then triggers the ADA coverage and therefore triggers a, a, an obligation to accommodate the uh, pregnant individual. It's also worth noting that this is not just an ADA issue, but also a Title VII issue. The EEOC points out, appropriately so, that the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, which is part of Title VII, requires that women who are affected by pregnancy, childbirth, and related medical conditions, they have to be treated the same as others who are similar in their ability or inability to work. So that's the EEOC. Uh, I suspect that just like we went through an entire episode on EEOC guidance back in May and now have to update this uh, here in June, I suspect we will hear more from the EEOC as the summer continues and there will be another opportunity to provide you a further update on how the EEOC is looking at the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's turn to OSHA. And OSHA has been in the news not just because of what it has done, but primarily because of what it has not done. OSHA has specifically not issued standards, specific standards, to the COVID-19 pandemic. And there have been a lot of people out there up in arms uh, over the fact that this agency, which is primarily, if not exclusively, uh, supposed to be involved in ensuring safe and healthy workplaces, 
How could they, of all agencies, not be issuing specific standards and instead relying on either past standards or this general duty clause? At least one lawsuit has already been filed trying to require uh, OSHA to do just that, and at least one judge has rejected the argument, at least on a temporary basis, saying that OSHA was not is not entitled to be forced to issue uh, emergency temporary standards specific to the COVID-19 pandemic. But OSHA has now provided, in the past few days, guidance on returning to work. But it is very clear up front, as it says right on page one, quote, this guidance is not a standard or regulation, and it creates no new legal obligations. Sounds very similar to what many companies put in the first page of their employee handbook. OSHA goes on, quote, it contains recommendations as well as descriptions of mandatory safety and health standards. The recommendations are advisory in nature, informational in content, and are intended to assist employers in providing a safe and healthful workplace. So it's a real interesting dynamic here. On the one hand, OSHA is being very specific and saying this is not a standard, it is not a regulation, it is not a rule of law, there are no new legal obligations created. On the other hand, you will likely see those who are suing organizations, those who are acting as lawyers for individual suing organizations, hold standards up like this when they believe that organizations should have engaged in certain practices and failed to do so. So what does this guidance on returning to work actually do? Well, OSHA says that these guidelines provide general principles for relaxing restrictions that were put in place to slow the spread of COVID-19. And if you actually look at this guidance, and you can find it at OSHA.gov, or you could reach out to me, and I'm happy to provide it to you as well. It's about 17 pages, uh, and most of this isn't really earth-shattering. Most of this is not really breaking news. It provides three phases um, for its guidance, and you know I will admit that all of these phases and references to phases gets kind of confusing when you're talking about phases for New York City, phases for New York State, phases for OSHA. It's, it's kind of hard to keep track, but OSHA's guidance provides three phases. In phase one, businesses should consider making telework available when possible and feasible. Employees who are returning to the workplace Employers should consider limiting the number of people in the workplace in order to maintain strict social distancing practices. Accommodations should be considered for workers who are in vulnerable um, groups where such accommodations are feasible. Unlike what I also just mentioned to you about the EEOC, and this is interesting, OSHA specifically says that in phase one, businesses should also consider extending special accommodations to workers with household members at higher risk of severe illness. Now again, it's interesting because I just told you a couple of minutes ago that the EEOC has confirmed that the ADA does not require that accommodations be made. The EEOC, while telling employers that they should be flexible in their policies, hasn't really gone to this length to suggest that even if it's not required, businesses still should do it. OSHA, on the other hand, while again, it is not a rule, it is not a regulation, it is not a required standard, OSHA chose fit to put in here that businesses should consider 
extending special accommodations to workers with household members who are at higher risk of severe illness. Moving on to OSHA's phase two, businesses should continue to make telework available where possible. Non-essential business that should have been limited in the first phase can start to resume. Limitations on social distancing and the number of people in the workplace can be eased. But employers, again, here, should still continue to accommodate vulnerable workers as it identified in phase one. And then phase three is essentially a return to normal. Businesses can and should resume unrestricted staffing of work sites. The real takeaway uh, from OSHA's guidance on returning to work, that's approximately 27 pages, is the following. Quote, for all phases of reopening, employers should develop and implement policies and procedures that address preventing, monitoring for, and responding to any emergence or resurgence of COVID-19 in the workplace or community. So what does that mean? OSHA, like so many other agencies, and, and hopefully like so many others who are advising on these issues, is telling you that you need to come up with a reopening plan. And maybe we'll tell you some of the elements that should be in the reopening plan, but we're not going to strictly define what has to be contained in the reopening plan because that is likely going to differ depending on the nature of your organization, the size of your organization, the layout of your workplace, what region of the state or country you are in. However, at a minimum, OSHA has given us nine guiding principles that they believe should be addressed in some fashion in your reopening plan as it pertains to OSHA. And here are the nine guiding principles. First, there should be a hazard assessment to determine when, where, how, and to what sources of COVID-19 your employees are likely to be exposed in the course of their job duties. What kind of outbreak conditions are in the community or likely to be in the community where you are located? What type of interactions are there going to be with your employees and members of the public, customers, visitors, delivery people? And what types of job tasks are being performed by employees so that we can make a determination as to what level of occupational exposure is likely to occur and therefore what types of things need to be included in your plan to address those. So a hazard assessment should be included in your reopening plan according to OSHA. Second guiding principle, hygiene. There should be somewhere in your reopening plan something that addresses practices for hand hygiene, respiratory etiquette, and cleaning and disinfection, particularly in high traffic areas and high touch surfaces. Guiding principle number three, social distancing should be addressed in your reopening plan, including, as OSHA says, practices for maximizing to the extent feasible and maintaining distance between all people, including workers, customers, and visitors. Six feet of distance continues to be the general rule of thumb, though that may change as community transmission of the virus uh, and other criteria require that um, a different distance threshold be maintained. 
The OSHA guidance gives some examples of how to implement a social distancing portion of your reopening plan, including signs, including um, stickers and markings on the floor and the walls, uh, both directional and otherwise, so that individuals know where they can stand, where they can walk, and where they should not be congregating. Guiding principle number four in OSHA's guidance on returning to work how to address the identification and isolation of sick employees, which should include developing practices for worker self-monitoring or self-screening, things that most of you are already doing already. But also, how are you addressing how to isolate and exclude from the workplace any employees with signs or symptoms of COVID-19, particularly those who become ill for the first time in the workplace, even though they pass their screening before coming to the workplace? The next guiding principle, number five, your reopening plans according to OSHA should address employees returning to work after having an illness or exposure to COVID-19. Your plan according to OSHA should include how workers recovering from COVID-19 are able to and when they are able to return to work. OSHA recommends that you follow CDC guidance for requiring and then ultimately discontinuing self-isolation and the return to work and discontinuing self-quarantine and monitoring after exposure to COVID-19. But OSHA is at least telling you, without getting too much into the weeds itself and coming up with new standards itself, it's telling you that this is another principle, another issue that has to be addressed in your reopening plan. Issue number six, guiding principle number six, your reopening plan should identify and address certain types of controls, such as, for example, engineering and administrative controls, safe work practices, and PPE that is required as a result of the hazard assessment that OSHA is suggesting that you do. What types of physical barriers and shields is necessary to separate workers? What type of enhanced ventilation needs to be looked at? What type of administrative controls, whether it's staggering work shifts, limiting or eliminating break room capacity, replacing in-person meetings with video conference calls? Again, not a lot of breaking news here. It is interesting to me that OSHA saw fit to uh, issue this, particularly because there isn't a lot new here. Um, but I do think OSHA wanted to get into the game. Uh, OSHA probably felt the need to say something on this issue. So even though a lot of this uh, are things and are guiding principles that we've been talking about now for days and weeks already and that you've heard from other agencies, OSHA saw fit to include these in its own um, guidance materials. Number seven, guiding principle that OSHA believes should be in your reopening plan, something that addresses workplace flexibilities, including remote work, if still feasible, including sick leave and other paid time off policies, including better communication so that your workers understand how to make use of available options. Number eight of their nine guiding principles has to do with training. So important. Training that includes training your frontline managers at a minimum, as well as your returning employees 
on the signs, the symptoms, and the risk factors that are associated with COVID-19. How to prevent the spread of COVID-19 at work. Train workers in the appropriate language and literacy level about their risks and what the company is doing to protect them, including site-specific measures that the company is undertaking to try to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Training workers about wearing face coverings in the workplace, including any policies that your organization may create relating to the use of face coverings and considerations for when face coverings could cause or contribute itself to a workplace safety and health hazard. And then lastly, the ninth guiding principle that OSHA believes should be addressed in your reopening plan, anti-retaliation. What kind of practices and protocols is the company going to adopt and implement to ensure that no adverse or retaliatory action is taken against an employee who adheres to the guidelines or who raises safety and health concerns in the workplace? OSHA ends its guidance um, before going on to uh, provide some sources and uh, sites for other materials to be obtained. OSHA makes clear, quote, these examples of guiding principles are not an exhaustive list of controls that may be appropriate, necessary, or feasible, nor do all examples apply to every employer, end quote. So again, OSHA is providing and has provided these nine guiding principles uh, for your company to consider when developing your reopening plan. They're certainly important buckets, certainly important guiding principles, but some may apply more than others depending on the nature of your company, the nature of your workplace, and the nature of your workforce. Finally, OSHA has uh, provided a couple of FAQs as well to make clear some of the things that I think many of us already understood. Uh, employers are permitted, according to OSHA, to conduct worksite COVID-19 testing as long as it is done in a non-retaliatory and consistent way for all employees. OSHA has confirmed in its new guidance that the OSHA Act and OSHA itself does not prohibit employer screening for COVID-19 if again it is applied in a consistent non-retaliatory way. Otherwise the OSHA guidance really refers to other guidance issued by the EEOC and the CDC on protocols and best practices for dealing with uh, a lot of uh, these issues in the current COVID-19 pandemic. So that's it. Uh, I suspect, just like I said with the EEOC, that we will still hear something more from OSHA in the coming weeks and months. I would suspect that'll take place as conditions continue to change. Hopefully it will all be for the better, but if there is any type of resurgence or if things tend to show a more negative trajectory than has been the case for the past few weeks, um, I suspect OSHA may jump back into the ring a little bit.
I hope this has been helpful to you. As always, I really appreciate you listening to the podcast, and I will continue to stay abreast of all of this stuff for you uh, and present it to you in future episodes so that you can bring it back to your company and continue to work on your return-to-work policies and practices based on the most current information. I hope you, your colleagues, and your family continue to stay well, stay safe and healthy, and until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.